Scott here with another episode of the History Unplugged podcast. As popular as William Shakespeare and his plays are today, he was far more popular a century ago in the United States. In Gold Rush, California, miners would wait out the harsh winter months by sitting around the campfire and act out Shakespeare's plays from memory. Going to the theater wasn't just an upper-class activity, but popular among all classes of people. He was so popular that in 1849, there was a riot that broke out over a production of Macbeth that led to 31 deaths. The riot broke down between supporters of Edwin Forrest, one of the best-known American actors of the time, and William McCready, a similarly known English actor, over which one was better. Shakespeare has also been beloved by nearly every American president. Thomas Jefferson took a pilgrimage to his home, and JFK claimed that Shakespeare was an American writer. And you can see the universal influence of Shakespeare in film. There are the many adaptations by Kenneth Branagh or Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet with Leonardo DiCaprio. We have all sorts of retellings like Lion King as Hamlet or Akira Kurosawa's Throne of Blood as Macbeth or Ten Things I Hate About You as The Taming of the Shrew or Strange Brew also as Hamlet if you want. To talk about the universality of Shakespeare is today's guest, Barry Edelstein, who's the host of the new podcast, Where There's a Will, Finding Shakespeare. Edelstein has directed Shakespeare productions for decades, and he explores all the unexpected and even crazy corners of our culture where the bard appears. We look at theater productions of Shakespeare in maximum security prisons, how he's used as part of cognitive speech therapy, and even when in 2022, many are calling into question the European canon of so-called dead European white guys, Shakespeare still survives and even thrives. Hope you enjoyed this discussion with Barry Edelstein. And one more thing before we get started with this episode, a quick break for a word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Wise, the account that helps you manage your money all around the world. I lived overseas for many years, and one of the biggest bottlenecks to international living is money transfers. You want to withdraw money from an ATM to access funds from your American bank account, and you don't realize you're getting hit with a $10 charge every single time you do that. Yeah, that did happen to me. So if you're dining in dollars or want to do business in bot, what a Wise account does is let you send, spend, and receive money in different currencies. Wise is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. This goes from a night out at a tapas bar in Spain to buying a property in the Yucatan. So if you're a digital nomad in Bali or want to send money back to mom, it's simple. And this is all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. Wise works in over 160 countries, so your money's always at your fingertips. And over half of the transfers get their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Join 16 million customers and learn how a Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com unplugged. That's wise.com unplugged. One more time, wise.com unplugged. Your show starts off with a bang where people are talking about how in the United States in 1849, people not only love Shakespeare, but they were willing to die over Shakespeare. And specifically, this has to do with a production of Macbeth that led to 31 deaths. So this is astounding. What led up to this? What was going on that would cause people to die over Shakespeare? Yes, it's one of the most amazing stories and sadly forgotten or pretty much unknown. And it's so rich. And every time I delve into it, I find more detail that just amazes me. But there's this episode called the Astor Place Riots happened on Astor Place, which is in lower Manhattan, sort of the East Village, right where NYU is today. And it was kind of the theater district. The theater district was lower Manhattan then, not Times Square. And there was this brand new theater built called the Astor Place Opera House, which was extremely fancy, very pricey to get in. They had a dress code. There was, you know, it was meant to be the sort of height of high culture. And this guy from England, his name was William Charles McCready, was on tour internationally. And he came there to play Shakespeare, specifically to play Macbeth. 
And around this figure of an English Shakespearean at an upper crust opera house, suddenly around this guy accreted all these other anxieties and political issues that were sort of bubbling up in New York and in the wider culture of America at the time, and it led to violence. Let's understand some of the background here. There are lingering effects of the War of 1812 in the United States, and this has to do with national identity, what it means to be an American, which is much more solidified than in the past where it wasn't terribly distinct from British identity. So could you talk about national identity and part of what led up to this? Sure. So there's a bunch of themes that sort of come together in the Astor Place riots, and Shakespeare is, in a way, kind of the vessel for all of them. There is one piece of the Shakespeare theme that really is specifically at the center of it, which is who does it better, the English or the Americans. But surrounding that, there was, say, I would say there were sort of three big ideas. One is this new country newly independent. You know, it's 1849, so it's under a century that the place has been independent. England had tried to get it back a few decades before in 1812. So there's this still sense of what are we, who are we as a country, how are we separate from England? New York City was then and still is today extremely Anglophilic, right? It's the most Anglophile city in the United States. So there are separations there about what should our relationship to the old country be? Then there's a big class piece of this, which is that the Astor Place Opera House was built for rich people by rich people to entertain rich people with an idea of kind of high culture entertainment, as opposed to the sort of working class community, which was downtown and a whole other bunch of theaters. The working class community in New York at that time was heavily Irish. So you also get this kind of Irish versus English animosity, which, of course, still persists in culture today. So that's the second piece of it. The third piece of it is this whole nativist thing, which, you know, sadly, we're continuing to experience so that even though the Irishmen were immigrants themselves, there were other immigrant groups that they didn't like. So there's all this weird internecine rivalries between the different immigrant groups. And then the fourth big theme, believe it or not, is gender, because the rival Shakespeare actor was this guy, Edwin Forrest, who was American. And his whole identity as an actor was his manliness. And he had big muscles. I mean, you know, you read descriptions of him today, and they focus on his biceps, you know? It's like reading somebody talking about Arnold Schwarzenegger in the 80s, you know? It's all people boggling at his thighs and his biceps. So this whole thing about manliness, where there's this contrast between American manliness and sort of English effeteness. So, you know, you get all this stuff, gender, nativism, immigration, class, national identity, all swirling around and it explodes. This is something that is hard for me to understand about Shakespeare, that at some point, I don't know how long after his death, he transcended being English and became a universal figure. And in these types of nativist tensions, say in the United States in the 1840s, when there's a huge influx of Irish immigrants after the potato famine, there's lingering resentment between them and the English. It's in this American cauldron. Those who are very anti-English, no one is disavowing Shakespeare because he is English. They're trying to claim him as their own. But the thought of disavowing him is impossible. It's sort of like you could have 
Christians. You could have some who are, let's say, a white supremacist and a black supremacist, both who claim Jesus, both who claim that he is, you know, of their skin color, but nobody would ever disavow him. Nobody would be so anti-Middle Eastern, one would say, that they would disavow Jesus because of his Semitic roots, where he has very much, he's transcended the idea of race. So Shakespeare has the sense of becoming a religious icon in a sense. So what's going on at this point? And we're going to come back to this theme over and over again, where people are claiming him as their own, where he's transcended English and he's this international figure. It's such a great question. And in a way, it's been the animating question of my 30-year career working on these plays. The romantic in me, or not even the romantic in me, the sort of artist in me and the humanist in me wants to say, well, the plays themselves have something in them that is so special, so beautiful, so meaningful, so, I hate to use the word universal, but for time, I'll use it, something so universal that they transcend all kinds of identity categories. They transcend nationalism, they transcend race, they transcend religion. And I would like to really believe that. And my experience making this podcast and traveling around to all these different communities where Shakespeare is turning up seems to justify that. And I'm glad and I'm delighted by that. But there's also the reality that the English language carried him around the world because of the might and the military power of England as it expanded around the globe. So you find Shakespeare in India. What's he doing there? He's doing there. He's there because the English brought him there. You find Shakespeare in Africa. There are all these crazy anecdotes about, you know, English ships foundering off the coast of Africa. And then suddenly Shakespeare shows up in the cultures of that are local to wherever that happened. He shows up in the Caribbean and obviously in the United States. Shakespeare showed up way before we were a country in the American South. You know, Virginia had Shakespeare theaters and English theater companies touring in the southern colonies. And the legacy of that is that Washington, D.C. today is one of the great Shakespeare cities in the world. And you can trace it back to that impulse. So I think you have to toggle back and forth between the Shakespeare that has conquered the world as a legacy of English military might, and the Shakespeare that has conquered the world because of his own innate beauty, humanity, truth. And that second piece started as early as 1623 when Shakespeare's complete works were published for the first time. And Ben Jonson, the then poet laureate of Britain and Shakespeare's friend and sometime rival, wrote a poem in which he said he was not of an age but for all time. So as early as 1623, the the handwriting was on the wall that this guy was going to be this transcendent universal figure. And 400 years later, he very much is. Right. And even though he's the vanguard of, let's say, English colonialism, at the time he's writing, he's not triumphalist or writing within this kind of like a Rudyard Kipling, who's very much a creature of the British Empire in the 1590s. England is not an imperial power. And in my field of Ottoman studies, there are many articles about how the Turks are depicted in Shakespeare. And England's very much powerless against the might of the Ottoman Empire. There's this sense of fear and otherization because of this. And you can see this in The Merchant of Venice and other plays like this. But because he's been around for over 400 years, he has appeared and influenced many historical figures that we could talk about at length. You have a whole episode about his influence on American presidents. Starting with John Adams, what was Shakespeare's influence on him? 
So, you know, Adams and Jefferson both revered Shakespeare. There's a famous episode where they were in England. I guess Adams was the ambassador to the court of St. James and Jefferson was in Paris. They went to Stratford to Shakespeare's birthplace together to sort of make a pilgrimage to the shrine. They took back a little sliver of Shakespeare's chair and Jefferson's hilarious about it because he recognizes that there's a warehouse full of Shakespeare's chairs that they keep cycling through so that people can clip relics off of it and claim that they had Shakespeare's chair, right? Very funny. And the two of them are this kind of strange, you know, planes, trains, and automobiles kind of traveling couple. And Jefferson is complaining about how expensive it is. And Adams is saying, oh, it's much smaller than I thought it would be. It's kind of this wonderful thing. But I think that they both experienced exactly what we were both just talking about. On the one hand, on a human level, these plays just are magnificent. And, you know, you hear a line of Shakespeare, you know, since you could quote any one of a thousand, that resonates with these guys just on a human level. You know, you hear Shakespeare talk about the moon at night, and you're moved and touched by it. These guys were writers, and they were sensitive to literature, and they recognized it on that level. But then on the other level, there's also this sense of the power that Shakespeare represents as a cultural figure. And that, I think, is where he becomes so interesting in terms of the president. So one of my guests on this episode of my podcast is James Shapiro. He's the great, great Shakespeare scholar, maybe the greatest Shakespeare scholar working at the moment, one of them, certainly. And he talks about how the presidents read Shakespeare because the Shakespeare history plays are chronicles of leadership failing so that the presidents read Shakespeare's plays as this kind of manual of the hazards of leadership and the things that can happen to you when you make a mistake in leadership or when you make a bad decision, which is sort of this wonderfully outside-the-box way of thinking about it. These guys are not turning to Shakespeare necessarily for inspiration, but they're turning to Shakespeare as political science. You know, there's this um, letter that Adams writes to his son where he reads Shakespeare as this sort of cautionary tale about entangling with international powers. So it's, it's this strange use of Shakespeare as a kind of guide to leadership that sits side by side with Shakespeare as this beautiful poet who can move you with a turn of phrase. That's getting my wheels turning, thinking if Adams read something like King Lear as a cautionary tale about monarchies and not giving political power to children and preventing nepotism in their young republic so they don't have the same problems as monarchies do. I'm sure there's many books on this. There are. And there's one example. Clinton, Bill Clinton writes in his memoir specifically about using Macbeth as a cautionary tale about power. So, you know, there really is that. There's this sense that you're sitting alone in the White House late at night and you're reading Shakespeare and saying, wow, I have to be careful about that, which is just so strange because that, that's, that's not the way I read him. You know, I don't pick up Hamlet and say, better not try to murder my uncle, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but the presidents read Macbeth and say, wow, I better not. Clinton is eloquent on it. He talks about power divorced from values. And it's kind of great. He's really digging into this stuff in the way one would dig into scripture or some kind of spiritual text, which moves me greatly and provokes me greatly too. What did Jefferson get from Shakespeare? You note that he took a pilgrimage to his house, so he was highly influenced by him, incredibly well-read. He would have read his plays. So what was Jefferson's takeaway? 
So here again, Scott, this is not my area of expertise. So you'll have to forgive me here a little bit. So I know that Jefferson wrote about Shakespeare as a writer, Jefferson being this, you know, spectacular writer with a real devotion to the craft of writing. And he wrote somewhere about how Shakespeare is the model for all writers. So I get the sense in Jefferson's case, this is me speculating here, that he went to Stratford to kind of see the desk where the great writing took place and sort of draw inspiration from Shakespeare, I guess, less as some sort of moral exemplar, but more as a professional model for him to aspire to. You know, very different from Lincoln's relationship with Shakespeare, which was much more personal, you know, and Lincoln having lost a son and Shakespeare having lost a son and Lincoln obsessed as the Civil War draws to an end with the huge grief and loss and guilt that he could have done something different. And Lincoln's favorite Shakespeare speech, he said, was the speech of the guilty King Claudius in Hamlet, attempting to repent for the crimes that he committed, but finding that his soul is so black that he can't, right? And that, again, it's just this crazy thing. You think, well, if I were president of the United States, I would read Henry V, and I would pick out the St. Crispin's Day speech, the single most inspirational rallying of the troops maybe ever written in the English language. But that's not what these guys are reading. That's not what Lincoln is reading. Lincoln is obsessing on a speech about guilt and failure and loss and grief. So, you know, is is that something about the office of the presidency and its loneliness and its burden? Or is that something about the psyche of Abraham Lincoln as a man who at that moment in his life was lost and looking for solace? I don't know, both, I suppose, but it's just very rich material. Hey everyone, Scott here. We're going to take a short break for a word from our sponsors. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Coming to that, where you would think that Shakespeare would rally somebody who wants to be an optimistic speechmaker, but is actually consoling these lonely people who might be racked by guilt. How did he influence JFK, who claims Shakespeare is an American writer? And one would assume that JFK, who's trying to 
create the you know moral clarity during the Cold War, rallying people during the space race, trying to create a new moral imperative to wage war on things like poverty and inequality, the way that the previous generation did against the Axis powers. What was JFK's relationship with Shakespeare? So that's a great question. And to answer it, I think you have to get into the special nature of JFK as kind of the last poet president that we had, right? I mean, the White House full of classical music and full of theater performances and, you know, fashion and the whole Camelot vision of this guy who's kind of a Renaissance man. And he has this famous quote JFK does about wishing that more politicians knew poetry and wishing that more poets knew politics. And he's kind of like the last poet president. Because in the early 20th century, you see this huge change in America where Shakespeare stops being the property of the working class as he was in 1849 during the Astor Place riot, where Edwin Forrest is the working class hero who's expressing his heroic nature by doing Shakespeare plays. But a hundred years later, Shakespeare doesn't belong to the working people anymore. Shakespeare is now the province of the elite. And I think that you've got to understand JFK's relationship to Shakespeare in that sense, that by the time you get to the early 20th century, and, you know, James Shapiro, other scholars have said, once the university English department is invented in the early part of the 20th century, Shakespeare is permanently part of the elite. And so a contemporary presidents won't go near him with a 10-foot pole. And in my episode about Shakespeare and the presidents, I spend a lot of time looking at Obama, who almost but didn't quite quote Shakespeare in his first inaugural. And I talked to a presidential speechwriter who says, well, no speechwriter in a million years would ever quote Shakespeare because it just is the province of the elite. And you're identifying yourself as this kind of Ivy League egghead, which is the last thing you want to do in a sort of, especially a populist moment like this, JFK dared to do it, but he could because everybody knew who he was, right? His brother eulogized JFK by quoting Romeo and Juliet. It's just not possible anymore. So I think it was a natural expression of JFK's kind of Hyannisport, Boston Brahmin background, but also this sense of him wanting to encourage people to be serious about the arts and have the arts in their lives. Also, on a third level, when he said that about Shakespeare being an American writer, it was a state dinner at the White House in which he honored a Shakespeare theater that's in Connecticut, doesn't exist anymore, the Stratford Shakespeare Festival. I think it was the American Shakespeare Festival. I can't remember the exact name. And he was being a little cheeky, you know? He was tweaking the international guests that were there by just sort of flexing his muscle a little bit and making a joke. But I do think, Scott, that the bigger thing that circles JFK is this bridge between elite America and populist America and how Shakespeare kind of toggles back and forth over the course of our country's history. To speak to a wider point, it is interesting how you note that something that is a working class form of art becomes elite. And I thought about this when I was looking back on my musical studies. Through high school, I played saxophone. And like a lot of Midwesterners, if you do that, you're in some kind of jazz band or you'll try to try out for some all-state honor band. And when I was competing, I never made it. I wasn't that great. But it was a lot of kids who were doing it as sort of the package deal of being an honor student. So you do this along with your volunteer hours at Habitat for Humanity so you can apply to an Ivy League school. And I thought, we're upper middle class kids. And 
were doing this as a form of music that was the most dangerous, rebellious form of music 100 years ago. I mean, 100 years from now, are we going to be doing, you know, will there be rap battles done by Honor Society kids doing NWA lyrics from 100 years before? And this thing that was the populous, rebellious, revolutionary form of art has now been tamed in a sense. So your episode, when you're looking at the work of Shakespeare as part of a rehabilitative program in a maximum security prison, it's sort of swinging back in a way, because with all due respect to you know, theater graduates from Juilliard who are incredibly talented, their backgrounds, they might not be able to really maybe intuit what Shakespeare is doing when he's looking at themes of outsiders like Othello or Merchant of Venice the way that a prisoner might. So could you speak to that aspect? Well, that is such a great question. And I'm grateful for that question, Scott, because it gets to what the American theater is really grappling with at this moment in its life and in this, particularly in this post-pandemic moment and this post-George Floyd moment, which has to do with who gets to own culture broadly and who gets to own Shakespeare specifically. Right now, there's a calls to cancel Shakespeare, of course. You know, this old dead white guy who's been used as a lever to keep people out, right? The big part of the story of the Astor Place riots was let's keep the Irish working class away from Shakespeare by building this opera house where they would never be able to afford to get in. And so the American theater movement at the moment is looking very, very specifically at that, which is what can we do to start to take the theater as an art form and Shakespeare in particular back to just regular people who aren't English, who don't have an Ivy League education, maybe, who don't maybe have a lot of money, but nonetheless want to engage in all the different things that this writer can mean. Now, the American theater, of course, exists on the margins of American culture, right? We're not streaming television. We're not the movies. We don't reach millions and millions of people. The theater is local. I run the Old Globe in San Diego. It's one of the biggest, it might be by budget, the biggest theaters company outside of New York City at this moment. But in a big year, we'll sell 250,000 tickets, right? I mean, more people see a Padres game in a week in San Diego than come to see theater at the Old Globe in a year. So one recognizes where the theater exists in our culture. But because of its localness, those of us who run these theaters can make steps to actually try and share the culture more broadly and more democratically. And that's the project, which is recognizing that Shakespeare has become this elite property. What can we do to get it to regular folks, folks who never even thought that theater might have anything for them? So just now, we just yesterday, we finished a project where we took a Shakespeare play out on tour to homeless shelters, refugee centers, veteran centers, branch libraries, uh, senior centers, where we look at these populations around San Diego and we say, you know, you're not buying tickets to the old globe because for whatever reason, maybe you're in an institutional setting where you can't, or maybe you can't afford it, or maybe culturally it seems alien to you. And of course, most of these communities are lower income communities. Many of these communities are communities of color. And so this big institution has an obligation to say, you're part of it too. All of that's a long way of coming around to your question about what we're doing in prison. So, you know, the most marginalized population in American culture are men and women who are incarcerated. So the Old Globe is one of a number. So all of this 
brings us to what we're doing with Shakespeare with incarcerated populations, because incarcerated men and women are the single most marginalized population that we've got in this country. And the Globe is not the only theater that does this. There are a lot of theaters and other organizations that do work with incarcerated populations. But we have this program where we go into prisons in San Diego County. One of them is called Sentinella State Prison. It's actually an imperial county. It's part of the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitations, maximum security prison, isolated way out in the desert. And we send teaching artists in there to work on Shakespeare with the men who are there. And these are guys who've done, you know, really, they they wouldn't be there unless they had been convicted of really, really violent crimes. And they spend 18 weeks and they learn some Shakespeare, they study Shakespeare. There's a big culminating presentation where they will perform scenes from Shakespeare for other guys in the prison and for the staff and pre-COVID for their families who could come in. But the most amazing piece of this is that our program asks them to write their own reflective material based on the themes in Shakespeare. So, you know, you work on a play like Othello and you talk about jealousy. You work on a play like Henry IV and you talk about change and redemption. And these guys write this stuff that is so revealing and so vulnerable and so surprising in the context. And Shakespeare is kind of this Trojan horse who they've let in and they understand who Shakespeare is and why Shakespeare is important. But then Shakespeare's belly opens up and out comes this whole other thing that gives them an emotional language that they didn't have before, that gives them tools to express themselves that they didn't have before. And it's just stunningly powerful and really, really, really moving. One follow-up with that, when you've seen productions of it in these different locations, like you've said, in locations in front of audiences that typically wouldn't be able to see Shakespeare in a theater setting, were there reactions that stood out to you that you saw that this or that play or this or that performance really resonated with someone that, let's say somebody who had a more comfortable middle-class life, maybe the themes didn't stick out too much and they're seeing Shakespeare more as a cultural experience or an outing or date night or whatnot. But then when you perform in front of someone who maybe lived a life that a Shakespeare character really would have lived and there's something that clicks and they really get it. Are there any moments like that that have stood out to you? There are thousands of moments like that. The thing I love so much about doing this work is that the kind of responses that come from guys who have never been taught that you have to have a degree in English literature in order to have an opinion about this material, right? They, they haven't been told that. They haven't been told that there is a price to admission. They're just responding to the material on its own face. And so when you understand sort of questions of like loyalty, I remember working on Hamlet in one of our prison programs. And the moment where Hamlet apologizes for to Laertes for all that he's done, right? Laertes' sister is dead. Laertes' father is dead because of this guy. And this guy comes in and apologizes and Laertes has to decide whether or not to accept it. You know, the conversation that ensued, the insights that ensued from these guys about how do we feel about people that have done violence to us? What does it mean to forgive? Are we capable of forgiving? Should we seek you know, some sort of, I don't know, apology from those that we have wronged was just remarkable. You know, I don't even have adjectives superlative enough to really capture how powerful that stuff is. And so different 
from essays about Hamlet that you'd see written by some incredibly famous critic, right? There's just an immediacy to it. There's an automatic contact to it. There is a lack of prejudgment about it. There, it isn't burdened by centuries of previous opinion. It's just this incredibly direct connection. And, you know, it's amazing. And the Globe has had incredible success stories. You know, on my episode about the work we're doing in prison, I talked to a guy who met Shakespeare through our program in Sentinella State Prison, got released, and is now working as a teaching artist with the Old Globe, going back into the very place where he was incarcerated to try and share with other men the kind of insights and transformation that he had thanks to Shakespeare. You know, and okay, it's one guy, but the power of that one human transformation is extraordinary and I think makes a better case for why Shakespeare matters than 700 productions at the National Theatre in London. Scott here. One more break for a word from our sponsors. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. This episode is brought to you by Calitrin. Calitrin is a weight loss supplement made from collagen protein and digestive enzymes. Calitrin is designed to assist the body in repairing and rebuilding lean muscle using top quality ingredients. The reason it contains collagen, which is the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the body, is because it decreases as we age. Because Calitrin rebuilds this critical protein, it promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. I tried it for a month, slept great, felt more energetic, and noticeably shed weight that was gained over the holidays. Calitrin has an 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. Here are some customer testimonials. Maria in Pennsylvania lost 117 pounds with Calitrin. Ron in Texas lost 35 pounds. And Diane not only lost weight, but found relief from arthritis. This week, you can take advantage of their President's Day sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free, plus free shipping. Ordering is extremely easy. Just text the word UNPLUGGED to 30605, and you'll get a link to this special offer. Text the word UNPLUGGED to 30605. Again, text UNPLUGGED to 30605. The history of the Popes of Rome and Christianity reaches into nearly every aspect of history. In the History of the Papacy podcast, we step over the rope. We dive in to discover more about the people, events, and background that define the influence of the Popes of Rome and Church, not only on the West, but the world. To start listening now, go to ParthenonPodcast.com or search for History of the Papacy on your favorite podcast platform. When I was prepping for this interview, I was going to ask you about adaptations and retellings of Shakespeare. So I was looking online and there's some pretty well-known ones. There's the many Kenneth Branagh adaptations or the Boslerman, Romeo and Juliet, with Leonardo DiCaprio. But there are just dozens and dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of retellings. As a quick aside, I'm curious, are there any really strange ones that stick out to you, whether on film or on stage, of adaptations of Shakespeare? Well, I just found out that there's this cartoon series called The Transformers. I think it's kind of old now. But there was this like Hamlet-like plot 
involving one of the robots in the Transformers, you know, and you go, really? Wow. You know, one of my personal favorites is Star Trek. You know, if you're a Star Trek fan at all, Shakespeare's laced through that series. They're always quoting Shakespeare. There are, you know, weird little bits of Hamlet or Macbeth that show up in the plots of Star Trek episodes. Shatner was a Shakespearean actor before he joined the Federation, you know? So yeah, I absolutely love all that stuff. What Kenneth Branagh is doing brilliantly is he's basically filming the plays and he does it extraordinarily well. And so that's one end of it, which is let's just take the play and we'll make a film of it. And we might do it in the period in which Shakespeare wrote it, or we might do, we might move it to another period. You know, there's a modern dress, much ado about nothing, stuff like that. Then there's sort of adaptations where we'll take characters from Shakespeare and imagine alternative endings for them. So just two weeks ago on Broadway, a musical opened called Anne Juliet, which imagines what would happen if Juliet had not died at the end of Romeo and Juliet, but had lived and what her life would look like. There's a TV series on now called Rosaline, which is about the character in Romeo and Juliet, whom we never meet, who's Romeo's first girlfriend, who he blows off when he meets Juliet at the ball at the Capulets. And so this series follows Rosaline and tries to figure out what happened to her. So I think the point is that the stories are so robust the stories are so powerful and enduring. I don't know, you think about the other one that comes to mind is like Moby Dick, right? Just a, or Bible stories, right? These narratives that are so iconic, so durable, that they can tolerate being looked at through a kaleidoscope, you know, and it's fun. And one of the episodes of my podcast is called Four Hamlets. And there was a, an opera at the Metropolitan Opera last year, an adaptation of Hamlet that sort of puts the thing in the blender and comes up with a new thing. The play that won the 2022 Pulitzer Prize for Drama is called Fat Ham, which is a modern adaptation of the Hamlet story set at a barbecue in the backyard of a Black family in the American South right now. Then Robert Eggers, the visionary genius filmmaker, has this movie called Northman, which uses the myths, the sort of Viking myths that were lurking in the background of Shakespeare's imagination and tells the kind of proto-Hamlet story. And then during the pandemic, my own theater did a radio version of Hamlet because we couldn't perform it live that we put out around on the airwaves of San Diego during the pandemic. So he's infinitely adaptable. He's infinitely usable to move into some other context, to move into some other cultural framework, you know, to tell stories that seem somehow to persist and transcend time and history and culture in a way that really nobody else has figured out how to do. Right. Almost any popular movie you can think of has elements in there. Star Trek True, Wrath of Khan, I would say, and many others, the best movie. There's King Lear quoted in the fight between Captain Kirk and Khan. The Lion King is a retelling of Hamlet. Akira Kurosawa has retold Shakespeare in a few different movies. If you want Amanda Bynes, she's the man as a retelling of Twelfth Night. Some argue Strange Brew has a lot of homage to Hamlet. So there are so many different types of retellings. I mean, you could argue in almost any film, there are elements. So I suppose with the universality of Shakespeare topic, we've come back to many times in this discussion. What do you hope listeners take away from your podcast for you having worked professionally with Shakespeare's plays over the decades? What do you hope is the big takeaway? 
Well, I will say there's kind of like some local things and then some sort of bigger picture things. The local thing is I want to get people excited about Shakespeare because I have known for 30 years of my life the joy and the beauty and the emotional power that this body of work has brought to me. Shakespeare has brought so much meaning into my life at moments of crisis, at moments of triumph, and just as a person alive in this world. You know, the the story I always like to tell is when I used to live in New York, we spent a lot of time in Sullivan County in the Catskills, a couple hours north of New York City, beautiful, bucolic, idyllic, green, verdant part of New York State. And I remember going to bed one night in April and looking out at the grass before I went to sleep. I woke up the next morning and there were daffodils everywhere, like by miracle, as if someone had come out overnight and planted hundreds of daffodils everywhere. And the first thing that came to my mind was this moment in Shakespeare's play, The Winter's Tale, where this guy sings a song that says, when daffodils begin to peer, why then comes in the sweet of the year. And I thought, exactly. Shakespeare got it exactly right. The daffodils have come in and springtime is here. So I have these personal epiphanies around Shakespeare again and again and again, and I just want to evangelize for him. I want the people who listen to my podcast to say, well, maybe there's something in this material for me that I didn't know was there, and it'll make my life that much more beautiful. So that's one thing I really hope comes out of this. The second thing has to do with where Shakespeare is as a contested figure at this moment. You know, he's a dead white guy from 400 years ago. We know that there is this centuries-long sort of misuse of Shakespeare as a way of keeping other people out, as a way of othering people, as a way of marginalizing people, as a way of excluding people. And so there are these calls to say, well, let's put him on the shelf for a little while. Maybe Shakespeare's not what we need to do. Maybe we need to make room for some other kinds of voices. And to which I say, absolutely, yes, we need to tell all the stories that have been crowded out by the ubiquity of Shakespeare. But before we toss Shakespeare into the dumpster, let's take note of just all the different places where he is enfranchising marginalized populations in prisons, for example. I mean, in one of my episodes, we talk about what Shakespeare is doing with autistic kids and actually autistic kids who are struggling to communicate, who basically are almost uncommunicative in any other form through this one visionary person who has invented a method using Shakespeare are now finding themselves able to communicate thanks to Shakespeare's voice becoming a kind of surrogate for their own. Shakespeare in the lives of teenagers who are feeling like in a world of TikTok, they're not finding a language that they can quite hear, but are finding Shakespeare there. So to me, the strongest argument against the cancellation of Shakespeare is to say, but look at all the meaning that he's delivering in all these different communities and all these different populations. And that's a good thing. And that's a really, really positive thing. And we don't want that to go away. So, you know, love Shakespeare in your own personal life and then understand that Shakespeare has this second layer where he is a cultural force that literally is enfranchising disenfranchised populations and giving them a language that allows them to be heard in a different way. And politically, that's powerful and necessary in an atomized, 
fractionalized world that we're living in, Shakespeare can become a hub of meeting, a hub of common understanding, and a place where all these different separate pieces of American culture can agree on something. And that's what I hope my series starts to talk about. Absolutely. And for listeners who want to hear these themes explored in much greater detail than we could get to here, the name of Barry's podcast is Where There's a Will, Finding Shakespeare. Barry, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Scott. I enjoyed that enormously. All right, that is all for today's episode. If you'd like to see show notes for this and all my other episodes and include sources, maps, or other relevant information, go to ParthenonPodcast.com. Parthenon is the name of the podcast network that History Unplugged is a part of, along with other great history shows like James Early's Key Battles of American History, Steve Guerra's Beyond the Big Screen and History of the Papacy, and other shows as well. If you'd like to support History Unplugged, there are two easy ways to do so. The first is to subscribe to the show on the podcast player of your choice and leave a review. This really helps the show grow. The second thing is to join our membership program on Patreon. And if you do so, you can get completely ad-free episodes of the entire back catalog of the show, which is 600 episodes and growing. Just go to patreon.com slash unplugged. Thanks for listening and see you next time.